Right. I received an interesting email over the Easter holiday period, and it was from the Ask Italian Restaurant. Now, I always get excited when I get emails from restaurants, so I think, oh, here we go. Here's a freebie. And it, was, it wasn't a freebie, it was more of a... It was, it, they didn't tell you exactly what was on the menu, it just said, uh, there's the Easter special, come down to ask, and the slogan was, there's more to Easter than chocolate. And that is a bold statement. There's more to Easter than chocolate. This year's been excellent, really good for me at Easter because I've got three children and that's equaled more eggs. Now, Isabel's not even one yet, but she got three eggs. And being a parent I am, I'm not going to give them all them eggs. They can have the white chocolate ones, of course. But after that, I'm going to negotiate and give them accordingly. So my... And I'll tell you what, as I've got older, the eggs have seemed to have gone down. I'm, I'm, I'm only getting one a year now. Of my mum, bless her heart. It's not, it, this year it wasn't an egg, it was a bunny, but I wasn't going to go into that. But do you know what? It's been amazing that, that I've just had to take a few eggs and my pile's got a little bit bigger. So for the Ask Restaurant to say there's more to Easter than chocolate is a bold statement. And do you know what? I need to get something off my chest with this as well because I've been, I've been suckered into this before. This whole, yeah, come down, we've got an Easter special one. Because I've done it, I've gone in there, I've sat in a restaurant, I thought, here we go, I'll open up the menu. Oh, yes, yeah, so that's what I'll start with. The garlic mushrooms, because they're not too heavy and they don't interfere with my main course. Then I'll go on to the chicken and chilli pasta with the olive oil and the sun-dried tomatoes, because I like a little bit of heat. And I'm really into the hot and cold contrast of the hot fudge brandy with the ice cream. I'm really enjoying that at the moment. So I'm all happy, I'm sitting there, and a the waiter come over and he goes, Hello, so I go, Hi, how are you? He said, You're here for the Easter special? Yes, I am. With that, the paper menu comes over. It's not the same. It's not the same as the menu I'm looking at. It's something different. And it'll have two starters, one of which is rocket leaves <laughs> and pickled vegetables. And then, what, then there'll be oh, I don't know, two pizzas with fish on and two, uh, two other mains, which is spaghetti bolognese and lasagna. I have that at home. I don't want to come here and have that. And the desserts, sorbet. What is that? <laughs> is that ice cream or is it ice? It just hurts my teeth. <laughs> It's not, it's not really, that's not really got much to do with what I'm talking about today, but I just feel I want to get it off my chest. So is anyone here or is anyone listening that's managing one of these restaurants, just leave the menu alone. If you're going to measure an Easter special at 12.95, do what you say. But they have got one thing right. There is something much more important at Easter than chocolate. Over the last few weeks we've been hearing about Jesus and what he did. Because what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, is more important to us than any restaurant deal or any chocolate egg. It's the most biggest and most significant thing to ever happen in history. Nothing bigger will ever happen. Nothing will ever surpass it. I never get bored of hearing it. It's so important to us. It's amazing, isn't it? It's life-changing. It's life-saving. It's the gospel. Some of you may be thinking, Joe, what, I've heard all this before. You know, by God's grace, you're going to hear it again. By God's grace, you're going to be able to hear this message again. When I was growing up, Jesus did get a look in at Christmas and Easter. You know, my mum would take me to certain uh, church services, and, and even the schools then would teach certain things at these times of year, the, the birth of Jesus and his death, death and resurrection. And the reason we have these uh, holidays is because of, him, because of him. We have today's date because of him. He's the centrepiece of everything. He holds it all together. It's all about him. But why have we moved away from uh, Jesus getting a look in at these times of year and just getting a look into probably now, when I talk to people, not even giving him a second thought at Easter and Christmas? I think the reason for that is because in the main, he only got looks in at certain times of the year. He was traditional. He's much bigger than that. 
He's much bigger than the traditional. He's much bigger than Christmas and Easter. He's about a bigger thing than that. And that's why we're going to look at that today. I've been in conversation with people about Jesus and what he did for them at the cross. And I, I don't know if they're actually engaging with me or they're getting what I'm saying. Because they say, Joe, well, thanks. That's nice. It's not nice. It's not nice what he went through. And we're going to look at why it's not nice later. It would be absolutely tragic if we only remember Jesus at Christmas and Easter. Tragic. We'd have missed the point. We'd have missed the point. He's the saviour of the whole world. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. Those of us who have repented and put our faith in Jesus, we can't stop praising him and giving him the glory. As you see earlier when we were worshipping, like Steph said, there's a joy in our hearts. We can't stop praising him. And if you come into this church on any given Sunday, you'd think Easter was then. Why? Because we sing songs about the cross and what he's done. We pray prayers about what he's done. We break bread and have the juice because we want to remember his body broken and his blood shed for us. We do this every week because if you take Jesus and what he did out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. It's not there. It falls apart. More songs have been sung. More pictures have been painted. More books have been written about Jesus than anyone else. The Old Testament points to him. There are 322 prophecies about him, about his, the way he was born, his life, his death, and how he would be risen. It really is the blood and guts of what we believe. It's the foundation. Everything comes out of it. It's massive. It's the gospel. It's the good news. If you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn to uh, Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 14. And we're going to read from verse 32 to 42. I'm sorry, everyone normally has it up here, but I just didn't know how to do that. I thought, how do I do I was going to bring a pen and write it up, but I thought that's going to be silly, because next week we're going to be in trouble looking at the same verses. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 32 through to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again we went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer's hand. Let's pray. <coughs> oh Lord Jesus, we love you. We are in absolute awe of you and what you've done for us. Absolute awe, Lord. And I just pray, my prayer today is, Lord, that you will capture our hearts again. We will be bowled over by this gospel again, Lord God. And I pray for, for those who don't know you here today, Lord, that you will just capture their heart. I pray the Holy Spirit help me give this message. Let, let, let our ears and hearts be open to you in a, in a real tangible way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Right, before we get into this passage, I just want to give a quick overview of what's been happening. Because it's important to see Jesus in a different light. We see him in a different light in this passage. We've seen him through, the, through his ministry. Um, he was born, as you know, by Mary, who was a virgin, all which was prophesied hundreds of years about. But you see God's hand on him very clearly in him early stages. as He's a baby moving him around because King Herod was trying to kill him because he knew there was a new king on the scene. He didn't like it, so he was killing all the, the male babies in that region. It was a terrible time, terrible time. Then we fast forward to Jesus at 12 years old. And uh, him and his family was uh, travelling down to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, which was according to Jewish custom. And on the way back when they was travelling home, his parents realised that he wasn't there. He'd gone missing. So they rushed back to Jerusalem and looking for him. And the Bible tells us that he was sitting in a temple asking questions and listening to the teachers. This was Jesus at 12 years of age. The Bible tells us that they were amazed at his understanding. When his parents found him, they said, where have you been? We've been worried. And his reply was, where did you think? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? I wonder what they thought at that point. What are you talking about? Come on. There was a clue there. But the next 18 years of Jesus' life, he lived in obscurity. He was unknown. He was unimportant. He was the chippy from up north. The carpenter from up north. He was looking after his family. He would have felt the pressures of, of daily life until his baptism. When he was baptised by John the Baptist and as he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And you know sometimes you read something in the Bible you think, I wish I was there. Well, I wish I was there. Because God says, you could hear God's voice from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Wow. God confirming the love that the father and son share and that Jesus is identity of the son of God. Now, Jesus being the Son of God puts him on an equal footing with God. He was going around acting like God and doing things like God. He talked about knowing God as Father. Jesus had all authority and power. All authority and power. He had the authority to teach. People were amazed at his teaching. You know, he was drawing crowds all the time. Now, the teachers of the Lord didn't come up with their own authority. They didn't claim no authority of their own. They didn't come up with their own material. Jesus did. Jesus did. He had the authority over nature. He was silencing storms. And raging seas with his words. The disciples at the time were going, who is this? Even the weather uh, responds to him. He was healing all kinds of sickness. The blind were seeing, the uh, deaf were hearing, the lame were walking. He had the authority over death. He was raising people from the dead. All authority and power was given to Jesus. And he had the authority to forgive sins. Many times in the Bible you could say, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace, your sins are forgiven. It was this that got him crucified. Everyone knew only God could forgive sins. Jesus was trying to tell us something now. He was definitely a man. He was born. He had a body. He hungered. He thirsted. He got tired and he died. But he was much more than that. He was much more than just a man. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He's the radiance, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. His ministry lasted three years from the time he was baptised to the time he was crucified and risen from the dead. That was three years. He made a massive impact in that time. He turned everything on its head and he's still making an impact today. He was on a mission. He was on a mission. And you know what? He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to the cross. He said to his disciples on a few occasions, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Let's go back to the passage. We see Jesus very differently now, differently to any other time. At the beginning of the passage, it says, 
Jesus was distressed and troubled. The Saviour was distressed and troubled. He hadn't, seen, he hadn't never showed any signs like this before. In Luke's Gospel, in his account of the garden, we read that Jesus was in agony and his sweat become like great uh, drops of blood. Now this is a real med- uh, medical condition. This occurs when the capillary blood vessels burst and they, they, they mix with um, sweat and blood. It highlights the intensity of Jesus' emotional and physical trauma, what he was going through. He was in agony. He tells his disciples, sit here while I pray. Sit here while I pray. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. This is the language he was using. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Jesus' soul was in agony. His soul was in agony. Jesus suffered, was suffering in the soul as well as the body. And his sorrow was in the highest degree. And it was a sorrow that was going to last right up to the time of his death. Right up to the time he victoriously cried out, it is finished. It was a killing sorrow. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before that, that Jesus would be a man of sorrows. That he would be a man of sorrows. Jesus prays with the enormity of what's ahead of him. The enormity of what's on his shoulders. The weight of bearing the judgment of God. Jesus was truly on his own. Yeah, he had disciples, but he was truly on his own. He was totally forsaken. When he asked his disciples to watch and pray, he came back and finding them asleep. As if it wasn't hard enough, you think, Jesus going through what he had to go through. Uh, he was looking probably to receive some comfort there. But yet in his agony, it seemed like there was little concern from the disciples because he kept finding them asleep. They couldn't keep themselves awake. You know, I used to think this was really harsh at first. Because I think, right, well, it's night time, you know, and the disciples are up there. And, you know, I'm like a cat. I will sleep absolutely anywhere. I'm, my, I'm snoring before my head hits the pillar. I, mean, I think Luke's got a video of me fishing in the rain in a deck chair asleep. <laughs> so, you know, I just think, well, I don't know. But Jesus only asked them to watch and pray for one hour. And his own suffering, he was still calling his disciples to be trusting in prayer and in watchfulness. And if you look back nine verses from the passage I've just read, you've got Peter there, who's, who's saying to the Lord, the others may fall away, but not me. I won't fall away, I won't leave you. What does Jesus say to him? Before the rooster cries twice, you will deny me three times. But he emphatically says, no, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. After this passage, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, they all flee and leave him. A little bit later on, Peter does go on to deny him three times. Jesus is totally alone. Totally alone. Jesus is totally abandoned. Saviour of our souls, alone. He did it all and he bore it all on himself. I used to drive a van for um, a company called Murphy's, a big construction company. And uh, I used to burn the candle at both ends. And I'd, I'd gone up to Oxford early in the morning. I hadn't had much sleep, so I'd gone up to Oxford, done this job. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a sleep. I have a bit of rest. So I'm having a sleep, and then my phone, I couldn't hear my phone ringing, but my phone's ringing because they've got another job for me to do somewhere else. But I'm, I'm roaring, I'm, I'm not hearing anything. I'm not hearing the motorway, the car's coming by me or nothing, nothing's waking me up. So they phoned the site where I was, I said, is Dean there? And they said, no, do you know what, he left about an hour and a half ago. And they said, oh good, because we, we've got another job from near London, he must be nearly there. When they got hold of me, I was, they asked me to do something, I couldn't do it. Why? Because I hadn't got proper rest. I had it rested at the proper time, so when I was asked to do something, I couldn't do it. I felt God put impresses on my heart. It's, it's very practical, but, you know, I said, God is good. <laughs> he talks to us about the practical things. We, we don't want to be tired for the wrong reasons. We don't want to be tired when God calls us to do something. We can't do it because we haven't got the proper rest. 
I've been off of work for a year now with some uh, knee surgery, so late night movies have been all the thing for me. Lord of the, trilogy, Lord of the Rings trilogy, four times I think, I've been turning it out. Rambos, Rockies, The Blue Planet. So even watching the Darling Buds of May the other night at quarter to twelve. I don't know. I just got a warm one. I thought I like it. <laughs> I've had to repent of that because I've missed evangelistic opportunities the next day because I've been too tired. And I can't be bothered because my eyes are heavy and I'm taking someone into to school and I'm in the cafe having a cup of coffee and someone's talking to me. And there's an opportunity come up and I've missed it because I wasn't ready, because I was tired. Also for myself, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just talking here for myself recently. It's got in a way of me spending time with the Lord as well. I don't say it in a legalistic way. I say it because it's good for us. I've been too tired. I've gone home and slept most of the day because I've been up. I only had a couple of hours sleep because I've been watching films all night. And our, and our relationship with God is the most important relationship of all. We need to invest in it. We need to invest in it. Otherwise it becomes stale. And do you know what else as well? I, but when I was back at work, I'd find that I was busy in myself things when, with things I didn't really need to be busy with. I'll tell you, Donna, we're really busy at the moment, didn't we? When I was looking, there was things in there, but we didn't need to be busy with them. We need to get our priorities right. But look at Jesus. Look how gracious he is to the disciples. Even then, he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The, the spirit of the disciples was desiring to follow Jesus and to be faithful. But their bodies quickly gave into tiredness. We can, we, well-intentioned believers, can that, that can happen to us. We can fail to fulfil God's calling on our lives and not come into all that he's got for because of various physical needs or desires. It can rob what God's got for you. Get good rest. Get good rest at the right time and be filled with the Holy Spirit so we can overcome the flesh. What does Jesus pray? Verse 36. How does he start his prayer? He starts it, Abba, Father. That's how he starts his prayer, Abba, Father. It shows a real intimacy between the Father and the Son. A real intimacy. And for those who have accepted Jesus into their life, we've got that intimacy too. Galatians 4 verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What an amazing honour and privilege. That is an amazing honour and privilege, that we can come boldly to the throne room of God, we've got access, and we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing that we've been adopted, adopted into his family. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, start, our Father in heaven. He teaches us, that's how we should pray, our Father in heaven. It shows the authority, warmth and intimacy of a loving Father's care. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So you've got the intimacy. Then you've got the, this is really exciting, you've got the acknowledgement of the Father's power. The acknowledgement, so Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, then he prays, all things are possible for you. Now, this is before he's prayed anything, what, he, what, he's, bring, what he's bringing before the Father. He hasn't prayed anything. He's, he's acknowledging the power that God can do it. All things are possible for you. That is, I was really excited when I, when I was looking at this, preparing, I was studying. I really got excited because when we pray, we should be believing that God is able to do it. We be, should be believing that God is able to do it. And when we submit to, he, to his will, believing all things are possible for him, God, our faith's going to rise, isn't it? Huh? Our faith level should be rising. That God is able to do it. And when we submit to his will, we should be believing that. As we pray for friends. Father, all things are possible. Save my friends. They look like a million miles away. All things are possible for you, Lord. Father, save my family. 
they mock me for what I do. All things are possible for you, Lord. All things are possible. Lord, this, this, this area we live in, it looks like it's in darkness. Turn it on its head because all things are possible for you. When we pray for the sick, Lord, it looks like it's a brick wall. All things are possible for you. It's what we bring to the Father before we even bring our petitions. All things are possible. Do you know, this week I've had two all things are possibles happening to me this week. Big things. I'm nearly near to moving my house. Out of the blue, four weeks ago, my, my benefits get stopped. And over a, a silly reason, but they got stopped. Now, when you're, when you're doing a house swap, you have to have all the rent up to date and everything's got to be up to date before you can sign. So I've got no rent being paid, got no money coming in. And then I get a phone call. We get near to the time of signing. I don't know what's going to happen. It all, all looks like it's in the air. I get a phone call from the, my housing association saying, Dean, we need a confirmation email from your benefits people to say they're going to pay the rent up to the date you move. I went, oh, right, do you? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, when do you want that for? She went, could you get that for tomorrow so we can start processing? All oh, right, okay, yeah. See you later then. Put the phone down and I said to Don, they're not going to give me a confirmation email <laughs> because we're going for an appeal. They're not even paying anything. The whole thing's got to be redone again. So I prayed. I prayed that night. I said, Lord, this looks like an impossible situation. I don't even want to phone the benefits people to ask them for a confirmation email. I'm leaving it with you. So I phoned back the Hires and Association woman the next day because I had something else to talk to her about. She brought it up and said, you know that email, don't worry about it. She says, forget that confirmation email. I said, oh yeah. And I, I wanted to know why she wanted to forget. I said, why? She went, oh, I don't know. She went, I think we've made a mistake. I said, okay, fine. Excellent. <laughs> the next one, a couple of days later, I'm, uh, I'm thinking right now, I'm getting close to signing. I'm, I'm, they're going to look at my, know that I'm four weeks in uh, arrears because they stopped it on the 30th of March. So I find out the benefits people say, what's going on? They said, listen, mate, we're really sorry, but the appeal's going to take to the end of April. So what are you talking about? I said, I've sent it off like two weeks ago. And you said, he said, yeah, I know, but we've got a backlog of three weeks before we can even look at it. I said, okay. He said, it wasn't the guy's fault. He said, oh, what do you want me to do? Just got, that's why it is a three-week backlog. So that night I said to them, we need to pray again because there's a three-week backlog for these that can even look at it. I want to sign this week. So we pray, Lord, listen, Lord, we look like we're in a possible situation here. It's not looking good. We need to get these, these benefits back on. The appeal ain't going to look at for three weeks. Two days later, I feel like the Lord just say, just ring back the benefits people. I ring back the benefits people. I said, I know you said it was going to be a few weeks, but can you tell me what's happening with my appeal? They said, oh, it's been resumed. It's put back on. I said, have you made it? I said, oh. I said, I thought you had a backlog. She went, yeah, well, it's put back. yours has been put back on, and we've paid you up to the date. Praise God. All things are possible. How many times does Jesus pray that prayer? How many times does he go back? Three times. He goes back three times. That teaches us something, to be persistent in prayer. Our prayers might not always get answered the way we want, and they might not come as quickly as we want, but Jesus teaches us to keep praying and not to lose heart. He teaches that in Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, to keep praying and not lose heart. Donna's mum prayed for me for seven years every night to be saved. And a couple of other people who were praying for me actually give up. She kept going and going until I gave my life to Jesus. And then she crossed me off the list. Joel's leg took a while, didn't it? But we kept banging on the door. Father, all things are possible. And we're going to keep going. We'll be childlike in prayer. But it was the cup that was causing Jesus to be in distress 
and sorrowful and in agony. The cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God which he'd pour out on sinners. Jeremiah 25 verses 15 to 16 says this, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. You read in, old, in other Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, Zechariah, the horror the drinking of this cup brings. The horror. Desolation, sorrow and shame. By Jesus drinking from this cup would have meant severe divine judgment for Jesus. Firstly, it would have meant crucifixion. The first thing he would have seen when he was looking into the cup. I don't know if any of you have seen the Passion of Christ. Them scenes in there are horrific. They're bloody scenes. Really bloody scenes. But before a Roman execution was done, scourging was done on the person. There are only women and uh, Roman centres were exempt from this. It was horrific. It was done using a whip, which would have had a wooden handle and different lengths of leather with uh, iron balls on there. And as they, the iron balls were for tenderising the flesh. So as they hit the flesh, they would, would tenderise the flesh. Then on that, you would have had bits of bone and metal, sharp bits of bone and metal that would have gone into the flesh and ripped the skin. It would have ripped skin, muscle, tendon, and even exposing bone. It was absolutely horrific. That the, the person being scores would have been tied to a post and the whip would have been used on the backs, the backsides and the legs. Many died from that ordeal alone. They didn't even make it to the cross. They died there. Excruciating pain. Excruciating pain. If you hadn't have died from that, you probably wish the wish you was. You probably at that point would have wished you was. Jesus went through that. He went through that. After that, he would have had uh, a crown of thorns, probably know, an inch or so long, pressed into his head. Thorns would have been pressed into his head. Blood would have been running down his face, in his eyes, his beard. He would have been a bloody mess. He would have been a mess. After that, he, was, he would have had to carry his cross. He was made to carry his cross. Uh, a man called Simon of Syrian had to help him because Jesus was so physically exhausted after what he'd been through. Beatings, scourgings, thorns pressed into his head. That's our saviour. That's what he would have looked at when he looked into the cup. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 500 BC and it was, it was acknowledged to be the most despicable and disgusting way to kill a person. Our word excruciating literally means from the cross. The criminal would have been secured to the cross by six inch nails being driven through the wrists and through the ankles. The, per, the cross would have been lifted vertically into a hole where the person there would have hanged but with, in the air with nothing but nails to support their weight. So horrific was the, the whole ordeal that Roman women was ever hardly crucified. And if they were, they were crucified facing the cross. So passers-by couldn't see their face. I want to read to you, uh, this is a doctor's description of what a person would have gone through on the cross. As he slowly slags down on the nails in the wrists, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode into the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves and he pushes himself uh, as he pushes himself upward to avoid stress and torment, he places the full weight on the nail for his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps, cramp sweeps through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. When these cramps come, the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Hours of lim limitless pain, cycles of twisting, 
joint rendering cramps, intermittent phys physical, uh, uh, what's that word, suffocation? Asphyxiation, uh, that's the one. Searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain in the chest as a membrane around the heart slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is almost over. The loss of tissue reaches a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. It's just awful. It's just awful. Jesus would have seen that in the cup. He would have seen that in the cup. Secondly, from drinking the cup, Jesus would have experienced spiritual separation from the Father. We've seen from even at a young age at 12, he was, he, was, he was regarding God as Father. He always had an intimate relationship with the Father. By drinking from the cup, that would have been cut off and severed. It would have been far worse. That would have been far worse for him than the, the actual crucifixion. As hard as that is, that, that severing a relationship would have been much worse for him. Always had intimacy with the Father. Knowing all this, what does Jesus pray? Not what I will, but what you will. But not what I will, but what you will. What amazing obedience to the Father. What amazing obedience Jesus shows. He was always willing to submit to the Father's will and always has done. John 6 verse 38 says, For I have come down to heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was the will of the Lord? What was the will of the Father? Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus did not deserve to drink from this cup. He did not deserve the cup of God's wrath. He did not deserve to be beaten. He did not deserve to be scourged. He did not deserve to be crucified. He did not deserve to be cut off from God. It's sin that God hates with a passion. It's sin that God punishes and judges. It's sin that cuts us off from God. Jesus deserved none of that. It's not that, it's not that God loves the sight of blood, it's that he's just. What kind of a God would it be if he just smiled at all the sin that goes in the world, the horrific and common sin? What kind of a God would he be? Do you know what the mind-blowing thing about this is? That God put the penalty of sin on his one and only son, Jesus. That's the mind-blowing thing about this. That Jesus didn't deserve it, but God put it on him. Why is it mind-blowing? Because Jesus was sinless. He committed no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He committed no sin. Satan was, was unable to tempt him in the wilderness for 40 days. The Jews who opposed Jesus said, Jesus said to him, which of you convicts me of sin? No one answered. When he was before Pilate, he could find no crime in him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Light represents truthfulness and purity. Jesus is claiming to be the source of all that. How could he make that claim unless he was free from sin? He could only make that claim unless he was free from sin. 
The animal sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament had to be perfect. They couldn't have one eye, three legs, or be a bit dodgy. So it was the same with Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. A perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. The Son of God, without spot or blemished. He lived his life obediently to God. He never broke any laws. He never broke any commandments. He lived the perfect life. Listen to this verse. Listen to this verse. It's amazing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Hallelujah. He made him for our sake. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus became a murderer, rapist, paedophile, slave trader, armed robber, thief, adulterer, drug dealer, uh, liar, gossip, and any other thing you can think of. He became that on the cross. All the wrong things we have thought, said and done wrong, it was that sin that nailed him to the cross. It wasn't his own. He didn't deserve it. What incredible news that Jesus would die as a substitute for sinners like us, taking the full force of God's justice upon himself so that we can receive forgiveness. We get his perfect life and he gets our messy one. This is incredible news. This is incredible news. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Because the Bible says, that Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. I want you to imagine this room is a picture gallery. And every single day of your life is on the wall. Every single day, from the time you was born right up to now. Every single day. And I'm sure there'll be lots to celebrate. I'm sure there'll be acts of kindness and compassion. Uh, good grades in university. A good marriage. I'm sure there'd be a lot up there you'd want to keep out the public gaze. If it was my life, I'd be running out the door. I would be ashamed. God's all-seeing and he's all-knowing. He sees our faults, hears our words and our actions. There are no sins that God's going to brush under the carpet. There are no sins he's going to look over. Our sin, it enslaves us, it traps us. Steph said earlier, you tried giving it up. There's a power over us. The wages of sin is death. We've all learned it and we're all going to get paid. But there is a hope. There is a hope. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen? No denomination. No trying to be good. No priest. No vicar. No attending church every week can save you. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can save and all who call on his name will be saved. It does get on my nerves a little bit when people say, what's God ever done for me? What's God ever done for you? He's only loved you with an everlasting love forever. And because of his great love for you, he didn't leave you to suffer the consequences of your sin. No, he did something about it. He sent his one and only son to die on a cross. (coughs) It's the gospel of grace that God doesn't count our trespasses against us. It's undeserved favour. It's not what we deserve, but it's what we get. John 3, 16, I love it, and you know what, it's not used enough for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a gift. He gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. And to try and do something, to add something on to the end of that, as Steph said again, is insulting. It's like saying what Jesus did on the cross isn't enough. It's a gift. The Apostle Paul writes, where sin increased, grace abandoned all the more. You are more sinful than you ever realised, but you're more loved than you ever dreamed of. You may be, you are big sinners, but Jesus is a bigger saviour. 
God's always been about reconciliation. He's always been about bringing a people back into a relationship with himself. It's the story of the Bible, and it's all been made possible in Jesus. If you're, you're here today and you don't know God, you've not accepted Jesus into your life, he's calling you. He's calling you. He's saying, come and be reconciled to me. Be reconciled to me. Let's have a relationship. A relationship with the living God. It's mind-blowing. It's amazing. The Christian life's not easy. Far from it. Believers still have all the troubles that everyone else has, all the troubles that the world throws at us. But we have a God who never leaves us or forsakes us. Who never leaves us or forsakes us. He's got a plan and a purpose for your life. A fullness of life and an eternal one in heaven because Jesus defeated sin and death because of his sinful life. We worship a living king. We worship a risen king. He's not in the tomb no more. He's just alive today as he was 2,000 years ago. All you've got to do to accept this gift is believe. It's the only thing you've got to do is believe. Take a step of faith. Put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Jesus will return one day. He's going to return. Only the Father knows the time, but you need to be ready. So I want to finish now. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus drank from the cup. He drank every single drop of it. So you wouldn't have to. He drank it all in, and all the bitterness that was in that cup, the crucifixion, the separation, he drank every drop. So we wouldn't have to. What an amazing saviour. Should we worship him? Should we give him the glory that he's due? So the band would like to come up. Just a couple of